Season 3 of Tiny Expeditions is made possible through the support of our sponsor, EBSCO Information Services, the leading provider of online research content, search technologies, and workflow tools serving public libraries, schools, academic institutions, corporations, and medical institutions around the world, proudly delivering information access for researchers at all levels, online at ebsco.com. That's E-B-S-C-O dot com. It's just fascinating that you have this incredibly complex, wonderful organ that one spelling mistake ends up causing it to eventually degrade and die and cause the individual to die. And can we understand that and then can we do something about it? Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Tiny Expeditions. Today's episode is an interesting one. We are going to use our brains to talk about brains. Actually, Chris, we're talking about what happens when things go wrong with the brain. We're talking about neurodegenerative diseases. I'm Dr. Sarah Sharman, and I'll help us walk through the science. And I'm Chris Powell. I'm going to be our storytelling guide for today. Today, you will hear from two Hudson Alpha faculty members, and you'll take a journey into the lab with a senior scientist. So let's get started. Let's dive into the world of neurodegenerative diseases. So I'm Rick Myers. Rick is a man of many titles here at Hudson Alpha. He is the Chief Scientific Officer, President Emeritus, MA Loya Chair in Genomics, and a faculty investigator. And for those of you who remember the Human Genome Project, the groundbreaking project that really gave birth to all of this, well, Rick and his lab at Stanford were a part of that project as well. I'm a human geneticist and genomicist. I work on how genes uh, affect humans and really other organisms as well. You've probably all heard of diseases like ALS, Alzheimer's, and Huntington's disease, but maybe the term neurodegenerative disease is less familiar to you. It turns out these are all diseases under this umbrella category. When something is called a neurodegenerative disease, this means that something goes wrong with neurons and they die. Uh, and that can be in the brain or in the spinal cord or in the peripheral nervous system as well. Neurons are key cells that have very specific kinds of properties that are different from most other cells. They, have, uh, they uh, fire electrical signals that have to do with how our nervous system works. And when neurons start to die, because they are connected to many other neurons and other cells, then that can affect how the downstream neurons live or, or then eventually die. So eventually you, get, you may get cell death all over the brain for disease that starts in the center of the brain, like Huntington's disease or Parkinson's disease. The list of diseases we're talking about today, ALS, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, these are names that we know in large part because most of us are affected by these diseases. We either know someone or have a family member or maybe we ourselves have been diagnosed with them. We are keenly aware of how insidious these diseases are and they impact such a large portion of our population. One of the striking things is that the world has identified about 600 different neurodegenerative diseases. Most of those are really, really rare. You would have never heard of them, or they're relatively small numbers of people. I mean, maybe even dozens that have been identified, or low hundreds identified around the world. Uh, and they range from those 
to um, Huntington disease has 30 to 40,000 uh, people with the disease in the United States with a lot more, maybe twice that number at risk. Uh, and then Alzheimer's, we have almost 6 million people in the United States with Alzheimer's disease, and that number is increasing as, we, uh, as our population ages. And then worldwide, that's in the many tens of millions of, of people with, with uh, the most common neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's disease. Um, and those are just the people who, who are living with these diseases. So, And that's Dr. Nick Cochran, faculty investigator at Hudson Alpha. Um, you have to uh, think about the, the ripple effect that this has with um, family caregivers and, and things like this. So this is one thing we've been trying to capture more recently in statistics is the economic impact that this can have, um, not only from the people directly affected by disease and those direct healthcare costs, um, but the the um, unpaid time um, that family members have to put in um, that uh, you know is, is also um, an economic impact of these diseases. We see how impactful these diseases are. So where do we even begin trying to study them? So it's interesting. If you want to understand a disease, it really helps to understand what causes it. And in some, and maybe even many of these, clearly genetics plays a role. There is a Simple genetics in the sense for Huntington disease because there's one gene with one spelling mistake, one, one mutation, and if you get that mutation, you will get the disease if you live into your mid to late 30s or, or, or a little longer. Uh, uh, it's an all or none thing. Let's take Alzheimer's disease as another example. We now know that there are about seven to 10 genes that if you have a mutation, a spelling mistake in one of those genes, uh, you will get Alzheimer's disease. The problem is those seven to 10 genes account for less than 1% of all Alzheimer's disease. Most of it, we still don't know the causes of, the, of Alzheimer's, or we know that it's a combination of multiple genes, some of which we might know. We've talked a lot in previous episodes about how changes in the genetic code itself can cause diseases in plants, animals, and humans. It turns out that diseases can also be caused by changes in how genes are regulated or turned on and off. Gene regulation is all about how much or how little of a protein a cell produces. There are areas of DNA that are involved in gene regulation, um, and we use all sorts of different approaches to understand it. And, and understanding it at a super fine level of detail is something that not a lot of people are doing. Um, if we can gain that information, we can understand whether genetic variation within those regions of DNA that are important for gene regulation um, may give risk for a certain disease. Um, and that goes back to that first point that I was making that maybe if we can find those key types of genetic variation, we can get those individuals enrolled in, in either uh, research or clinical studies. Another area that our, our laboratory works on is trying to understand the neurons themselves, human neurons, the cells by themselves, not inside a person. It's really hard to study neurons in a living person. Uh, can we look at those neurons either in post-mortem brain tissue or in this new technology that allows us to actually grow human neurons from starting from skin cells from people? Uh, uh, these are called IPS uh, uh, cells that you can then differentiate into neurons. This new technology definitely piqued the interest of both myself and Sarah, so we wanted to see for ourselves what this looked like. We met up with Dr. Lindsay Rizzardi in Dr. Meyer's lab. 
Hey, so you're Lindsay. I am. Welcome to the tissue culture room. Excellent. Thanks for letting us come in. Yeah, anytime. Do you guys want to check out some IPSCs? Definitely. Of course. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, you've got it up here ready? I do. Yeah. I was just checking these guys. So these are induced pluripotent stem cells that we've been growing in the lab. And these guys are about ready to get split for differentiation. You can see them here. They like to grow in these little clumps um, because there's a lot of important signaling that happens between these cells as they're growing. And they really don't like to be on their own. They'll try to find their buddies. Um, but when we get ready to differentiate them, we have to slip them into the single cells so that then they can respond to the growth factors or the... Um, the genes that we've turned on in these cells to differentiate into the cell types that we're interested in. So what did these, these cells start out as? So they were initially um, grown from human fibroblasts, and so you can get these from skin punches that people do for normal um, medical procedures that they may need, and then they get reprogrammed back into this iPSC state, which is why it's called an induced pluripotent stem cell state, because take these fibroblasts and induce them to revert back to a pluripotent state. And so you can do that by um, a cocktail of transcription factors activating them. And this basically wipes the epigenetic landscape clean and you start fresh and now you can have this, this potential to differentiate into whatever cell type that you might be interested in. So we're literally changing the cell or the, the function of the cell. Yeah, exactly right. And then we can um, redirect that cell um, to have whatever uh, uh, phenotype that, they, that we want as far as being a, a neuron or a cardiac cell or a microglia, um, as long as we know which factors they need to go down that differentiation pathway. So what are y'all using these cells for? Yeah, so these particular cells, um, we can induce the expression of a gene that will um, turn these cells into neurons. And so then what we plan to do with these neurons is um, a lot of functional genomics assays. And the assays that we tend to run are called uh, CRISPR inhibition screens because our lab is really interested in understanding the regulatory parts of the genome that control gene regulation. And so with CRISPR inhibition, what we have is a, a Cas9 enzyme that doesn't no longer cuts DNA, but it can bind very specifically to certain sites in the, in the genome based on what guide RNAs we give it. And then we've attached it to a repressive domain that when you land this at a particular region of the genome, it'll repress that region so it can't function anymore. And then that way we can see what the effects are on gene expression. Because for many regulatory regions of the genome, we don't know what the target gene is. And so by doing this in a large genome-wide screening scale, we can figure out for each part of the genome, when you inhibit it, what genes are changing their expression. And that way we can identify these links between this piece of DNA regulates this gene. And that's really important for what we're interested in, which is studying neurodegenerative diseases as well as other neurological um, disorders, because we know some of the genes that are affected in these diseases, but we don't always know how they're regulated and how this regulation goes awry. So this is a really good way to do this. And with single cell technologies, we're able to do this you know, kind of in large cell numbers and assaying large parts of the genome at once. So we go from here to single cell analysis? That's right. So we take these cells once we've differentiated them and then we've added our CRISPR system and added our guide RNAs that target each region of the genome. Each cell will get one guide RNA and target one region of the genome. And so together, if we assay 100,000 cells, we're assaying 100,000 regions of the genome at once. 
And so we can look at the effects of that on transcription, which is going to be that gene expression change that we're looking for. And in a single cell, we can say, okay, this cell got this guide RNA, which inhibits region A, and genes you know, X, Y, and Z changed expression, so they must be the ones being regulated by this piece of the genome. So it's really cool. That is cool. Yeah. And we're doing this not only with neurons, but also microglia as well. So for iPSCs, you know, the world is your oyster as far as what you can turn them into and what pathways you can study, as long as you know the right cocktail of either transcription factors that you need to activate to, to differentiate them into that cell type, or the combination of... Um, of reagents and growth factors that you might need to add to the media to induce them to grow into that particular cell type. Many of these diseases are so devastating and ultimately fatal because they are not detected until the individual begins showing symptoms. By the time symptoms show up in some of these diseases, irreversible damage has already been done to the brain. A diagnostic tool called blood-based biomarkers have begun to show promise for the early detection of diseases like cancer. A small sample of an individual's blood is analyzed for what we call biomarkers, which can be certain proteins or nucleic acids in the blood. These biomarkers have the potential to be applied to many aspects of neurodegenerative disease research. The new drugs have not worked because, probably because, they are starting to treat too late. So what if we could detect early, even pre-symptomatically, before you have any symptoms? So my lab has specialized uh, partly in seeing if we can develop blood tests. Take a little bit of blood and then look to see if there's something floating around in the bloodstream that's indicative of Alzheimer's disease or Huntington disease or some other disease, for instance. So. We've been able to do this uh, as a at least preliminary test in Alzheimer's disease. And while it's not ready for clinical use, we sure enough, we have found biomarkers. These are in the form of, uh, in, in our case, of specific small RNAs, something called microRNAs and other small RNAs. And we see those floating around in the bloodstream of people with Alzheimer's disease, but not so much in people without Alzheimer's disease. So a lot more study needs to be done on those. There need to be clinical trials, but we see this as a promising approach. And the, why would that be so important? If you could do the blood tests and you knew before somebody had symptoms or even very, very early in the course of the disease, the chances of a, of a, a new drug uh, that's in the trial, the chances of that working are much higher, we believe. So that's one of the, one of the really important things. We're applying that to, to other neurodegenerative diseases as well. Diagnostics are incredibly important and very helpful in helping us determine if we have neurodegenerative diseases. But if you are diagnosed with a disease, the first question that's going to pop in your head is, well, what can be done about this? There uh, are a couple of approved symptomatic treatments for Alzheimer's that can plateau um, individuals for maybe six months or so, and uh, they can delay nursing home placement by about two years. Um, so these are things like uh, Aricept and Amenda. Um, and so these are important and uh, good that we have in the clinic. Um, but they're, they're not modifying the underlying disease pathology. Um, but still, we're at the beginning of disease-modifying therapy for diseases like Alzheimer's, um, where 
we haven't yet reached that point that we're at with um, diseases like HIV or many cancers where there are multiple combinatorial treatments that can really impact um, disease course in a big way. So I think we're, we're still working towards that ultimate goal for Alzheimer's. Uh, L-DOPA is a um, really good treatment option for Parkinson's that can um, help individuals depending on on how their particular disease course goes um, for many years in some cases. Um, it is uh, still a symptomatic treatment, so it's not doing anything to the underlying death of the brain cells, but it uh, really helps patients a lot um, in some cases. The other thing that, that can help a lot is something called deep brain stimulation. So this is actually a, um, a surgery um, that's done to implant an electrode deep into the brain into a structure that's affected by Parkinson's. So Parkinson's arises because of degeneration of neurons in an area of the brain called the um, substantia nigra pars compactus. It's a very specific region of the brain that's involved in motor function. The first symptom that people often have with Parkinson's is just a subtle tremor in one hand. Although this is a small symptom, by the time this is noticed, there's often already 70 to 80% of damage to this part of the brain. What this deep brain stimulation um, uh, allows to happen is to uh, partially um, replicate the function of um, the loss of those neurons and then promote the function of, of those that still remain um, to uh, be able to gain some symptomatic benefit. Hey Sarah. Um, are you interested in going to Columbia? Chris, stay on track. We're talking about neurodegenerative diseases. <laughs> we are. That's a very astute observation. But in order to talk about neurodegenerative disease, we need to talk about Columbia. Because as we were talking with Dr. Cochran, he told us about some collaborations that are happening between the Institute and other researchers in Columbia. And this collaboration is quite fascinating. Fascinating is a great word to describe this study, Chris. So there's this family in Columbia, and they have a higher than average rate of early onset Alzheimer's disease. And by higher than average, I mean like one in five individuals with disease. So normally, we're looking at people getting Alzheimer's disease when they're about 70 to 80 years old. However, this family has generation after generation of members getting the disease as early as ages 40 to 50 years old. The, the history of this um, is uh, all, all starts with um, a physician named Francisco Lopera, who um, many years ago discovered a group of individuals with a very early onset form of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and this, uh, this group of patients has been in the news quite a, quite a bit. Um, so it's the largest uh, founder population of dominant Alzheimer's disease in the world, meaning that um, if someone inherits the mutation, they will, um, with certainty, eventually develop um, dominant Alzheimer's disease. Um, now, uh, one thing that's, that's happened, and, and the results just came out, and, and unfortunately this, was, this is, was a clinical trial that they set up for this population that ended up being negative, but we're hoping to learn more information about that soon. Um, and it's, it's perhaps not surprising, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll learn some information that will allow um, for refined approaches um, for that population. Um, but because of this, they, they set up this clinical trial for these individuals. And, and of course, um, everyone in these families was excited about participating in this and, and hopefully um, receiving a treatment that may provide some benefit. Um, so people from all over 
Columbia came to enroll in this trial. And, um, you know, the, uh, the clinicians there said, this is, this is great. We, of course, want to get you connected with this, with this treatment option. We just have to, um, you know, check your genetics and make sure that you really have this genetic change that, that causes this disease because that's who this particular trial is for. Um, for many of the individuals, they, they, of course, had this, this known mutation. And um, then for some, they did not. Um, and so, of course, the question is, well, you know, the, this individual still has an early onset dementia, but they don't have this one large, uh, um, th this one mutation that's in this large founder population. Um, so uh, what's going on with this family? So um, what came to fruition um, just in the past few months, um, we uh, collected samples from these individuals that um, were not from this large founder family, but still had an early onset dementia um, and described the underlying genetics in, in those individuals. In addition to these, these rare patient populations, we're now also um, deeply thinking about, along with um, many others across the country, that we need to right size um, our patient population um, uh, genetic cohorts for uh, representation um, of uh, global ancestries around the world. Um, so our contribution in this space is, is to try and help facilitate those efforts across South America. Um, we're working with um, 10 different centers across um, six different countries. Um, so uh, Colombia, like I, like I mentioned, uh, also uh, Brazil, uh, Chile, um, Argentina, uh, Mexico, and Peru. And uh, so through those efforts, um, we'll um, capture you know, things that may be unique to these ancestral populations. We'll find things that are shared um, across the world um, and also increase representation for these um, early onset and rare neurogenic diseases. So that's, that's ongoing now. It's really exciting. We've um, already measured genetic data for um, a couple of thousand participants and uh, we'll continue that. It's, it's uh, had a little bit of a setback with the COVID pandemic, of course, um, where it's been difficult for patients to enroll. Um, but despite that, we've still um, been able to do quite a bit. Um, so I'm excited about where that project goes over the coming years. Neurodegenerative disease is something that none of us want to deal with. The thought of losing our memory or motor function or watching someone we love lose those capacities is frightening. The good news is that there are some really amazing scientists working to understand, diagnose, and ultimately treat these diseases. The fight against them is going to be long, but it's far from over. Thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition into the science of neurodegenerative disease. Next time, it's back to bioethics. We will tackle big picture issues surrounding access to participation in genetic research. We'll ask questions like, does genetic research and genetic testing benefit everyone equally? And how can we rebuild trust with groups of people who have been mistreated by the medical and research communities? Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research, alongside companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If you find this podcast interesting, rate, review, like, and subscribe on the podcast app of your choice. And tell someone that you listen to this interesting little story about genetics. Knowledge is better when you share it. Thanks again to our sponsor, EBSCO Information Services, and thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us.